Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we're reaching back into the archive to 2020 to a virtual conversation with Colson Whitehead from Portland Arts and Lectures. It was, in fact, our very first virtual event of the pandemic. And while we are so glad to be back live, it is fascinating to hear again from that time period. We've chosen to broadcast this conversation now because Whitehead has just published a new novel called Crook Manifesto. There are few writers who are both as versatile and accomplished as Colson Whitehead. His subjects have ranged from elevator inspectors to middle-class Black American suburbia to the World Series of Poker. He has written noir, a zombie thriller, a semi-autobiographical coming-of-age novel, and historical fiction. At the same time, he has won dozens of awards and accolades, including two Pulitzer Prizes. Whitehead's significant contributions to literature come about not only because of his mastery of the craft, but also because he has range. He deploys pop culture, history, and a variety of literary techniques from realism to magic realism, and by doing so, he gives his stories new life, helping readers see sometimes familiar subjects in a new light. Colson Whitehead joined us for this event to talk about his novel, The Nickel Boys, which had just been published. He begins by talking about why he writes, and also about the Arthur Dozier School for Boys, the infamous and brutal facility that is at the center of this novel. After a brief reading, we'll hear him in conversation with Mitchell S. Jackson, who is the author of two celebrated books set in Portland, The Residue Years and Survival Math. Their conversation ties the characters, themes, and stories of Whitehead's books directly to the social and political moment of 2020, exploring fiction's role in helping us understand more fully the past and the present. Here is Whitehead. So when I started writing 20 years ago, I sometimes get nervous if uh, something I was putting down the page would make sense to other people. You know, I'm such a weirdo that sometimes I thought that the description of a place or a thing or emotion might escape the normal people. Um, of course, that's a writer's job, you know, to find the right words so that other people can see it in the same way you do. And I started thinking, I was thinking, well, you know, the world is also pretty large. Seven billion people. If something's true for me, it has to be true for one other person. And if it's one other person, maybe it's a dozen. And if it's a dozen, maybe it's a thousand. And if I can find the right words, the right sort of combination of words, maybe thousands and thousands of people can see the world in the same way I do. And that idea sort of calmed me when I sat down to write. It was true for me. It had to be true for at least someone else. But there's a flip side. If something's happening in one place, it's happening in other places as well. If there's one dozier, um, there are dozens of reform schools where the same tragedies are unfolding. Maybe it's not a reform school, but an orphanage or a home for unwed mothers in Ireland or a residential school in Canada where they used to take indigenous children, take them from their families to teach them in white culture and the same sort of abuses that you hear Heard about Dozier would happen there. Maybe it's a for-profit incarceration camp on our southern border where refugee children sleep in cages. It's anywhere where a culture of impunity reigns and destroys and ruins. That's the thing about numbers. They can calculate our common humanity, but also multiply our weaknesses as well. So I had a place. I needed characters. Um, Sometimes a fragment of my personality makes its way into my character, sometimes not. Uh, the main protagonist is a supporting cast. Um, Cora, the protagonist of the Underground Railroad, has the least amount of me in her, which is probably why it's my most popular book. Um, which is fine. It's going to help but notice that the book that I'm the least amount in is the most popular one. 
Um, in the case of the Nickel Boys, you know, to create my two main characters, I borrowed from my own internal dilemma. It was the spring of 2017 when I sat down to write. And um, Trump had been in office just a month or two. Things were already messed up. Uh, the last three and a half years have been a time of great division in America. These divisions and disputes have always been with us, and sometimes they're closer to the surface. The world is often quite terrible. Um, I like to think that the world is getting better you know, for my kids and kids they might have. The same way that my parents and grandparents had the hope that you know my generation would have it uh, better than they had it, uh, despite the injustice and prejudice and discrimination that they encountered every day. We make progress and fall back. And I was thinking, I was having a hard time reconciling my hopeful parts with my more realistic parts. And um, so much more evidence that things aren't going the right way. So to embody this dilemma, I picked two protagonists, one optimistic, one pessimistic, that might help me through my sort of philosophical problem. For Elwood, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. provides a model of engagement with the forces of evil. Uh, if you stand up, fight for justice, you can remake the world. Turner, his opposite, um, has survived by seeing the world as it actually is, not how we want it to be. And so the staff and administration at the Nickel Academy um, become stand-ins for all the malevolent powers that try to grind us down. And for me, that's the heart of the book. Uh, when Elwood and Turner meet and their debate on how to live and exist begins. There are two philosophies about how to be in the world. So um, before I talk to Mitchell, I'm going to read a brief part from the book. Uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. The boys rooted for Grift, even though he was a miserable bully who Jimmy and pride their weaknesses and made up weaknesses if he couldn't find any, such as calling you a not a piece of shit, even if your knees had never knocked the whole life. He tripped them and laughed at the ensuing pratfalls and slapped them around when he could get away with it. He punked them out, dragging them into dark rooms. He smelled like a horse and made fun of their mothers, which was pretty low given the general motherlessness of the student population. He stole the desserts on multiple occasions, swiped from trays with a grin, and even if the desserts in question were no great shapes, it was the principle. The boys rooted for Griff because he was going to represent the colored half of Nickel at the annual boxing match, and no matter what he did the rest of the year, the day of the fight, he would be all of them, one black body, and he was going to knock the white boy out. If Griff's fat teeth of what had happened swelled. The Nickel Academy was a reform school for boys, juvenile offenders, wards of the state, orphans, runaways who lit out to get away from mothers who entertained men for money, or to escape rummy fathers who came into their rooms in the middle of the night. Some of them had stolen money, cussed at their teachers, damaged public property. They told stories about bloody pool hall fights and uncles who sold moonshine. A bunch of them were sent there for offenses they never heard of. Malingering, mopery, incorrigibility. Words the boys didn't understand either, but what was their point with their meaning was clear enough. Nickel. The combat served as a kind of mollifying spell to tie them through the daily humiliations. The Coast Boys had held the boxing match title for 15 years, since 1949. Old hands on staff remember the last white champion and still talk them up. Other things in the old days they talked about less often. Terry Doc Burns had been an anvil-handed good old boy from the musty corner of Sewanee County, who'd been sent to Nickel for strangling a neighbor's chickens. 21 chickens, to be exact, because they were out to get him. Pain rolled off him like rain from a slate roof. After Doc Burns had returned to the free world, the white boys who advanced to the final fight were pipers, so wildly that over years of tall tales about the former champion had run more and more extravagant. Nature had gifted Doc Burns with unnaturally long reach. His legendary combo had swatted down every comer and rattled windows. In fact, 
Doc Burns had been beaten and ill-treated by so many in his life, family and strangers alike, that by the time he arrived in Nickel, all punishments were gentle breezes. This was Griff's first term on the boxing team. He'd arrived at Nickel in February, right after the graduation of the previous champ, Axel Parks. His emergence as the baddest brother on campus had made him Axel's natural successor. Griff was a giant, broad-chested and hunched like a big brown bear. His daddy, it was said, was on a chain gang in Alabama for killing his mother, making his meanness a handed-down thing. Outside the ring, Griff made a hobby of terrorizing the weaker boys, the boys without friends, the weepy ones. Inside the ring, his prey stepped right up so he didn't have to waste time hunting like a electric toaster or an automated washing machine. Boxing was a modern convenience that made his life easier. The coach for the color team was a Mississippian named Max David who worked in the school garage. He got an envelope at the end of the year for imparting what he'd learned during his welterweight stint. Max David made his pitch to Griff early in the summer. My first fight made me cockeyed, he said, and my farewell fight set my eyes right again. So trust me when I say the sport will break you down to build you up again, and that's a fact. Griff smiled. He pulverized and unmanned his opponents with cruel inevitability throughout autumn. He was not graceful. He was not a scientist. He was a powerful instrument of violence. And that sufficed. Given the typical length of enrollment at Nickel, sabotage by staff aside, most students were only around for one or two boxing seasons. As the championship approached, they had to be schooled in the importance of those December matches. The prelims within your dorm, the match between your dorm's best guy and the best sluggers from the other two dorms, and then the bout between the best black fighter and whatever chump the white boys put up. The championship was their sole acquaintance with justice at Nickel. Trevor Nickel had started to box the championship matches in 1946, soon after he came on as the director of the Florida Industrial School for Boys. Nickel had never run a school before. His background was in agriculture. He made an impression at clan meetings, however, with his improper speeches on moral improvement and the value of work disposition of young souls in need of care. The right people remembered his passion when an opening came up. His first Christmas at the school gave the county the chance to witness his improvements. Everything that needed a new coat of paint, a new coat of paint. The dark cells were briefly converted to more innocent use, and the regular beatings relocated to the small white utility building nicknamed the White House. Had the good people of Eleanor, Florida, seen the industrial fan that was kept in the White House to mask the sound of the screams, they might have had a question or two, but the shed was not part of the tour. Nickel was a longtime boxing evangelist, had steered a lobbying group for its expansion in the Olympics. Boxing had always been popular at the school, but the new director took the sports elevation as his remit. The athletics budget, long and easy target for directors on the skin, was rejiggered to pay for regulation equipment and to bolster the coaching staff. Nickel maintained a general interest in fitness. He possessed a fervent belief in the miracle of a human specimen in top shape and had often watched the boys shower to monitor the progress of their physical education. The director, Elwood had asked when Turner told him that last part, where do you think Dr. Campbell got that trick from, Turner had said. Nickel was gone now, but Dr. Campbell, the school psychologist, was known to loiter at the white boy's showers to pick his dates. All these dirty old men got a club together, Turner said. So I'll stop there. Um, and I guess before Mitchell and I talk, uh, I just want to tell you what I'm working on now. Um, you know, I'm sort of wrestling with two ideas now. Um, I like to mix it up in terms of genre. You know, I have a zombie novel, a coming-of-age story, two historical novels now. And um, so the two ideas I have, well, the first is a real departure for me, but it's a genre I haven't worked in before, uh, romance, a love story set on the eve of the Russian Revolution. 
there are a lot of uh, white people in it. So for research, uh, I'm watching a lot of Golden Girls reruns, just taking nuts and uh, you know massing uh, the data. The other one is a genre that's sort of more obvious, uh, science fiction. I worked in that before, you know, with uh, Zone One. Uh, I could think that could be fun. We did it right. Um, it's science fiction, but specifically science fiction set in the Star Wars universe. You know, they're making all these sequels now, expanding the universe. Um, I think there's room for, you know, my vision. I know Disney's really protective about their intellectual property or whatever. But if you ask me, you know, copyright is an outmoded concept, like um, being happy or falling in love or something like that. So there's two ideas. I'm sort of wrestling with what to do next. And now I'm excited to hear your questions and talk to Mitch. Man, I forget how funny you are. It's, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to, to get a little in what's happening right now. You know, the last time we talked, you had already won the, uh, the Pulitzer um, for the Underground Railroad. And uh, lo and behold, you won it again. And I remember one of the stories you were telling me about, you know, watching the, the I guess maybe on a laptop, the Pulitzer ceremony for Underground Railroad, that is, and the feeling um, of winning. And, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's maybe improbable one thinks that they'll win a Pulitzer. But then I wondered how that experience compared to this experience. Did you sit down with your wife again and watch it? Or did you just say, I'm not going to watch this year because I don't want to jinx it? Or how was it? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think there was a, a chance that this would happen two times in a row. Uh, and so uh, I, I didn't think about it. You know, my, my wife and I were in Sag Harbor. We came to New York City to get, like, an antibody test. Uh, so we were just doing, like, errands in the city. And I came out of the doctor's office, and my phone started blowing up. And it was my agent. And she was saying, like, you won it, you won it. And I was like, what? And, like, and so uh, I was just in the Upper East Side wearing a mask. And I was like running, my wife had gone to get coffee, so I was running to meet her, and I was just like sort of jumping crazily. <laughs> so uh, it was just a sort of a, you know, a crazy day. Um, you know, there's so much misery in the world that it was, you know, obviously the celebration was short-lived because you turn on the news and you realize that we're in the middle of this terrible situation. So, um, but yeah, it was, you know, it's a little mind-boggling and it's still hard to process. And um, I, I was in the neighborhood yesterday doing some errands. I was like, that's the bagel shop where I met my wife afterwards and we, you know, hugged each other. So, you know, despite everything, you know, we try to have fun. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I was also thinking about that because, you know, we talked a little bit before about your process. Um, and I remember you were doing some research in Harlem for, for this next project. I think it's still a project unless you go to the Golden Grove thing, which sounds great to me. Um, but I, if if COVID has, and not even just COVID, but like it's unimaginable for me to imagine winning a Pulitzer two times. And then if you add to that this kind of other world that we're all living in, I wonder how has that, if at all, affected your writing or what you want to write about or the way in which you're writing. Um, yeah, so if you could just talk a little bit about what it's like to be both celebrated in this moment, but then also have to pick up the pen and, and do the next thing again. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely strange. I mean, in terms of, uh, of uh, my next project, you know, I, um, it's not the Star Wars thing or the romance, uh, but maybe uh, I, I, was, I started a, a book that's uh, very different from Nickel Boys and Underground. It's a, a crime novel set in Harlem. And yes, I was, I was walking through Uptown doing research and location setting, as I call it. So when lockdown started, I was like, you know, three quarters of the way through. So um, I had a lot of momentum. So once the, you know, the kids got squared away, we got them doing remote learning and I would have an hour and I would take that hour. So I ended up finishing the book like in June. Um, just oh, like- wow. And, um, and so, in terms of my attention span, like I can watch TV, I can like play video games. Once I start finish, I, I start, I stopped writing the book, and I can read for work, but I can't read any like literary fiction. I can only read like thrillers and research. And so, 
my weird pandemic head is just uh, like I can work and I can zone out watching TV or whatever, but I can like, like I've been trying to read Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. I can get two pages and I'm like, what's up with the corona or the election? So my attention span is totally shot except for work, which is good, I guess. Um, and uh, but I would like to go back to reading, you know, proper books, you know, soon enough. Yeah. Uh, it was really interesting to hear the the ideas, or I guess not necessarily ideas, but the things that you were encountering that brought you to the different ideas for your for your novels. And uh, I mean, this is actually a really selfish question because I've also been thinking about this. But uh, I want to read the first lines of the Nickel Boys and the Underground Railroad. So for the Nickel Boys, it's even in death, the boys were trouble. And uh, for Underground Railroad, it was the first time Caesar approached Claire about running. She said no. And I thought, first of all, what is your kind of, do you have a philosophy about opening books? Um, and I'd be really interested to know when those lines came to you and how you knew that they were the things that should begin those books. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, I do a lot of outlining before I start. And so, um, uh, for, for many reasons, uh, that way I won't get through halfway writing a book and I'm like, this idea is stupid. I should never start it. If I do an outline and like, um, you know what I'm getting into, it's sort of, uh, is an argument for pursuing the book. And, and the, the outline is like a lot of the beginning, a lot of the end, the middle can be fuzzy, but I have to know what the, what the, um, destination is. And for the last couple of books, I've had the last image or mood or last sentence before I start writing. But since I'm doing all this research and outlining, uh, the first lines come before I actually, you know, sit down to write the book. And so that's a good line. I write it down and like three months later, when it's time to get to work, you know, I can finally put that into the computer file and it's official. Um, so I'm, I'm outlining, I'm doing research and like some sentences or paragraphs are popping up and they don't go into the manuscript until I actually sit down writing. But in both those cases, Nickel Boys and Underground, you know, those lines came to me, they point, they start off with sort of like the immediate res, the middle of the story. Um, they are tantalizing, like who's Caesar, who's Cora? Uh, what the boys are dead, how they die, who they trouble for. And so um, in both cases, these are books that are very linear, you know, they have a lot of forward, forward, forward momentum. I've written books like Sagar, which have no forward momentum. Uh, but the last two ones are pretty linear. And so um, you're starting off with some mysteries. Who are the boys? Who's Cora? Who's Caesar? And in both cases, they, they served, uh, I think, the story to have those, you know, two strong opening sentences. Yeah. Um, I read last night, I guess it must have been really early in the morning, about the... Uh, the Academy's new diversity and inclusion initiatives for best picture of the year. Um, and I wonder, um, you know, if you saw any connection between that initiative and even the, you know, what publishing paid me or some of the kind of earlier initiatives for diversity and inclusion in, uh, in publishing. Yeah. I mean, you know, publishing has a lot, a very long way to go. You know, I'm always struck when I go, you know, the last 20 years when I walked into my publisher, just how white all the people at the desks are. And it's about who wants to go into publishing, who sees it as an option from their background, who's going to underwrite the first couple of years when you're dealing with this terrible salary, outreach to, to schools to, um, you know, to get young black talent, young people of color, and say, we're interested in having new voices in editorial, in sales, and marketing. Um, so, you know, definitely this summer, you, there were multiple reckonings, definitely in media and publishing, Condé Nast, uh, this place, that place, schools, trying to play catch up because so many imbalances have been thrown into relief, vivid relief, uh, with the George Floyd protests and everyone is sort of examining in their own different industry what can be done. And really, you know, just a, a meeting where you get the top people in your field, put them in the room, they're usually going to be white. And it's movies, and it's publishing, and it's media. And so the imbalances are stark and obvious. And um, 
it was interesting to see in May and June, all these different industries put out their uh, statements. We're committed. We're doing this. We're committed to doing you know X, Y, and Z. And I think periodically there's that self-examination. What what actually is going to happen? So six months from now, let's see if people actually made an effort to hire outside their usual pool. Um, if the people behind the camera in these Hollywood movies and TV shows uh, reflect the diversity of the country. We'll see what actually happens. So I'm used to people talking a lot. I'm also used to not a lot of things changing. Not to be Mr. Negative. You know, I turned 50 <laughs> last year, and I realized that none of this stuff's going to get changed in my lifetime. And uh, so that's my middle-aged crisis, realizing that I'm not going to live to see any of this stuff get fixed. And this, there's a line in, um, not really a line, it's a monologue in the Underground Railroad. I want to find it here. Uh, it is Ridgeway, who's actually one of my, my favorite characters in there. I prefer the American spirit. This is Ridgeway speaking. The one that called us from the old world to the new to conquer and build and civilize and destroy that what needs to be destroyed to lift up the lesser races if not lift up, subjugate, and if not subjugate, exterminate. Uh, and that line, really, if we kind of think about it, I see it kind of echoing this idea of make America great again. And I wondered if you could, could kind of speak to what you know of what's been happening in Portland and this idea about making America great again. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, 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 wrote, I wrote most of Underground in, in 2015. It came out in 2016. And... Uh, in August, and three months later, we elected a, a white supremacist president. And so a lot of the things I was talking about in terms of Ridgeway and his idea of the American imperative, um, how history works, how capitalism works, uh, and white supremacy works, uh, became suddenly real again. You know, we've definitely had racist presidents before and corrupt presidents and dumb presidents, but none, no one this racist, dumb, and, and corrupt. And so, um, you know, we, we don't escape our history. Uh, America, America comes into being through the theft of Native American land and Native American genocide. America becomes a world power through slave labor and uh, the capitalist system built on, on black blood and, and toil. And so um, it's funny because I've been doing a lot of press now for the foreign publication in France and Spain of Nickel Boys, and people say, I get asked really dumb questions like, does racism still exist? That's <laughs> crazy. And also, you know, is Trump anything new? And of course, he's not. He's a representative figure. Um, uh, we've seen his type again. Uh, his type makes up that 40% uh, who's eager to have another sort of term of, of Trump. Um, they're the 60 million who voted for him, and those people are out there. Uh, so, and again, you know, those people aren't dying off in my lifetime. Uh, there are six-year-olds who hear the divisive rhetoric of, you know, Trump and his gang on TV, and they're six or seven, and they internalize it and think it's normal. And these are just, you know, kids, teenagers who are growing up in a very messed up time and a lot of our sort of hatred is very close to the surface and being encouraged by, um, by the media and our, our government. So um, nothing in Ridgeway's speech is going away anytime soon. Uh, all we can do is just you know, keep vigilant and keep fighting. Yeah. What makes me think about uh, uh, Elwood and, uh, and his optimism uh, I mean, there's just several moments in the Nickel Boys where he he does something that just seems out of character for that era, except for someone who would be uh, extremely optimistic. And and I was wondering about this. Uh, there's a there's a line towards the end of the book where we're talking about Elwood and his uh, how he refused to hear what the world was telling him, and he like believed in this higher order. Um, and, and the way that he listens to that to that King speech the whole time, uh, or not the whole time, but when he's very young, over and over again, 
And I was thinking, could you imagine an Elwood that had instead listened to something like Malcolm X's Ballad of the Bullet? And how might that have shaped his outlook rather than listening to that King speech? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I started with Elwood's personality first. So, um, you know, if you, if you read the book, he gets picked up. He's hitchhiking with the wrong person and gets sent to Nickel Academy. So if he'd left his house five minutes earlier or five minutes later, his whole life would have been changed. And so I knew that he'd be somebody who was going to Nickel by accident through a miscarriage of justice. The same way that so many young people are picked up uh, by police, stopped, interrogated, and if they reach too quickly for their wallet and that it's assumed it's a gun, they can be killed. Um, and I knew he'd be optimistic. And so in 63, if you're 16 years old and believe that the world could be changed, believe in the goodness of human people, uh, do you believe in do you follow Malcolm X or Martin Luther King? And so, you know, my character choice determined who he would ally himself with. If you believe that social justice is possible through uh, legal means, the way the system is already in place, then Malcolm X is not necessarily your guy. Uh, it's, it's Dr. King. And so, um, you know, I talk about outlining and you make a decision and you have to sort of follow through. So following through on... on um, Elwood's optimism meant that he'd be more allied with Dr. King than, than uh, Malcolm X. And does Turner's pragmatism or cynicism uh, speak to uh, an Xian attitude? You know, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, both of them end up in the reform school, and, and I, I thought it was really important that you mentioned that it started out as a, an idea that people had a good faith idea but that because humans were involved, it actually became very quickly something that was harmful uh, to the people that were sent there. And uh, I, um, I often think, especially in the summer times or right after the summer, that I was did time in an Oregon State prison. Now this is uh, you know 20 years ago now. Um, but I was also thinking about this idea of reform or rehabilitation. And uh, I had a conversation with this uh, woman named Baz Dresinger, who um, she has a program called the Prison to College Pipeline. So, you know, they talk a lot about the college to prison pipeline. This is the other way around, uh, actually um, catching men who's been incarcerated and helping them get an education. But also we had a chat and she said that, you know, when people talk about reform, they, all, they always talk about rehabilitating a person who has been incarcerated. But the thing that she said that really struck me was that most of the people that make it to prison were never habilitated to begin with. Um, and I wonder if you could, you think about that idea about habilitation versus rehabilitation and how it kind of plays out in the reform school. Like it seems like, you know, someone like Elwood gets there and he's maybe habilitated to begin with and then they work against him. But it seems like a lot of the other boys kind of never had that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, they've been failed from, from the beginning. Um, you know, Elwood is lucky that, you know, he's found uh, something in his life in terms of civil rights struggle, in terms of his studies. Um, uh, but the people at Nickel and the people like the real life model that the, the story is based on, it's juvenile delinquents. You can get there for smoking or throwing a rock through the window um, or, you know, not showing up for school. Or you can be sent there from being an orphan. There's nowhere else to put you, so we're just going to put you at, at Dozier. Um, you come from a, you know, what they say, call a broken home. Uh, your mother's an alcoholic. There's no one else. We'll, we'll put you in this place. And so it's, you know, it's um, kids with problems and also kids who are, have nowhere else to go. So it becomes a warehouse. Uh, like a lot of places now where we warehouse people, there's no plan. There's nothing. There's no execution to be followed, you know, followed up on. Um, and very quickly, you know, as with most human things, uh, things go to ruin. So, um, in, in, in Dozier and Nickel Academy, it's a collection of boys who are really, because of their poverty, because of their color, have been let down uh, almost from the time they were born and are um, imperiled when they get to this institution. So, yeah, so as you're saying, you know, we're, we're talking about a population that's been so ill-served 
before they get there um, that the that the uh, the odds of them against them. As I say later in the book, you know they've been deprived the chance of even being ordinary. They're not going to be presidents, not going to be Nobel scientists, but they can be just like normal um, because they've been ruined before they had a chance to, uh, to even do something as boring as being normal. Um, I know I keep going back to Elwood. He's my guy. I do like Turner too, though. But I was thinking about the, the it's, I guess it's not even really that important of a scene, except it seemed to speak a lot to the kind of person that he was in his community. There's a moment that you write about him, like seeing some boys stealing candy and then he, and he snitches on them. And then you, you, you write about why he did what he did. And you say that one of the reasons he didn't do it was because that he believed every attack on his brother was an attack on himself. Um, and that really struck me because it, it, that was the first kind of inclination that I had about him is that, you know, it was a, like them attacking uh, those other boys would mean that they would do it to Elwood. Um, and then I made me start thinking about just a few weeks ago, I didn't watch the Republican convention, but I read the news reports about it and then seeing I mean, obviously not that many black people, but just the few amount of black people that either attended or went to go speak. And I was thinking how there's so much evidence um, that the Republican Party is not, for lack of a better term, like pro-black. They're not really interested in advancing equality for black or brown or indigenous people. And how these people seem to me that these people who were who chose to speak and to support uh, in that way were also saying pretty much what Elwood was saying when he told him the people about the candy, which is like, every attack on my brother is not an attack on me. And I wonder if you if you thought about it in that way or how you kind of see that that idea. Well, you know, I mean, you know, there's a few things there. One is that, uh, you know, we hope that the, the teachers, the superintendents, the guards of a place like Dozier have the... Um, the best interests of their charges in mind. The same that we hope that our elected officials uh, have the best interests of the American people in mind when they go out uh, to work every day. And of course they don't. Of course they're corrupt and some of that corruption is uh, behind the scenes. Some of it is right in front of our face. Um, and again, that's the problem with institutions is that they're filled with, with human beings. Um, in terms of Elwood, uh, you know, I mean, you said early, earlier he does some things that are sort of hard to believe. You know, he's so good. And definitely when he stands up against the shoplifters, um, his various plans at nickel, standing up for the kid who's getting beaten up, I guess, you know, Elwood sent to the White House. Um, you know, he's, he's too good to be true sometimes. But actually, you know, he's part of a whole generation. He's part of uh, a generation inspired by Dr. King, John Lewis, they were doing things, and he grew, and Elwood grew up watching progress in terms of boycotts and protests and sit-ins, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, all these things that really had to seem impossible to his parent generation and his grandmother. Um, things are happening and things are changing. And so I'm talking about you know sort of human wickedness in institutions, and against that there, there's Elwood, who is too good to be true. But he's not because we have these real life figures like Dr. King and everyone he worked with who actually believed all this and did stand up and did fight so that you and I can have this conversation 50 years later. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, uh, civil rights and, and uh, there's a line uh, where um, your grandmother is listening to the news report, a radio report of Brown versus Board of Education. And then she tells, I think she tells Elwood, um, uh, Jim Crow ain't just gonna slink off. Um, and and it made me think about the kind of, uh, you know, a lot of people talking about like the white backlash of civil rights gains. And maybe this possibly being a kind of reenactment of the, the white backlash against uh, civil rights gains or other groups. And I wondered if that's the case, if you see it that way, then what does our history tell us about this moment that we're living in now? Well, I mean, um, 
I hate to be like the negative guy, <laughs> but um, you know, in terms of where we're, where where we're headed, um, you know, I'll, I'll talk about in terms of the book. You know, Elwood catches story in '63, in '65 after he gets out of Nickel Academy, we get the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and a lot of the stuff that he's marching for in that first section of the book, um, they they achieve in '65 under Lyndon Johnson. And then, you know, in the last couple of years, the Supreme Court repeals a lot of protections in the Voting Rights Act. And so that um, the stuff we took for granted, that our, our votes will be counted, uh, that will be recognized as citizens, are again uh, insecure. They can close voting places. They can create impediments to voting throughout uh, mail-in ballots. And so we can make progress. And it's so precarious that it can be undone by a malevolent Supreme Court, by a malevolent executive order. So what does history have to tell us? That we have to keep being vigilant. You know, we can't take these things for granted. We march and we get the legislation in place. And we really have to keep fighting because we're never safe. Yeah. Um. I do have some a hopeful question for us, but I'm going to save it for the end. You know, it's positive. Uh, what I want to do is, uh, is move to a couple of the uh, the reader questions, uh, viewer questions, viewer questions. And uh, this first one is from Maria, and Maria says, "Reading your books gave me a better sense of history than I ever got in any history class. What do you think of using fiction to teach history?" Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, uh, like that lady I mentioned in my reading who um, wanted to know about the cave-ins and the engineering uh, problems of the Underground Railroad. Unfortunately, some people do read the whole book and uh, don't get that those tunnels didn't exist, which frankly is not really my problem. Uh, I've been glad that a lot of high schools and, and colleges have picked up Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys, and use them as a jumping off point to talk about uh, different parts of American history. Obviously, um, in Underground, like I, I mix and match different historical periods. I'm exaggerating things, moving things around in order to create a different conversation about history. Um, but you know that can lead into a discussion of forced sterilization, which didn't happen, you know, in the 18. 1850s and 1860s, um, but we did have a program of sterilizing the poor and uh, mentally disabled uh, immigrants, um, and the Nazis in Europe took their cue from that. Uh, and so, Underground Railroad can lead into talk, talking about eugenics, uh, scientific racism, and, and Nazism. And I think uh, I'm glad that you can take those 20 pages in my book. And, 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 and teach what actually happened. Um, slavery is taught so shallowly in our country that a lot of kids don't know about the brutality of plantation life. And so I'm glad that um, uh, in striving to create a realistic plant, plantation, it provides an insight into how plantations work. And then with you know, Nickel Boys, we don't, you know, I think it's getting better, but we don't teach how Jim Crow worked, or segregation worked uh, very deeply. And so um, uh, we see how it plays out in, in Florida for Elwood and his community, for his grandfather, um, who was picked up for bumptious contact. You know, uh, one of the crazy things about Jim Crow laws is that you can be put in jail for not getting out of the way of a white person when they walk down the street, and you can be jailed and fined. And so there are big ways that Jim Crow was crazy, like segregation uh, and the various you know, aspects of voter disenfranchisement. And then the tiny, small ways that just wear your, your humanity, wear away your humanity, like bumptious contact. And so if those incidents and nickel boys can illuminate that period to a kid in high school, I'm glad. But there's no substitute for actually reading history books. And uh, you know, finding modern takes on, on history and Native American genocide and slavery as a corrective to um, the sort of flawed 
and official histories that I grew up on and you know, my parents grew up on. Okay, oh, that actually led into another question I wanted to, to, to ask about, but I, I want to ask uh, Darcy's question because I want to make sure that this gets asked. I think this is positive, uh, which is when it appeared Cora was going to be discovered while living in the attic, I had to put the book down. Obviously, we're talking about the Underground Railroad for those of you who just bought the books and haven't read them yet. Uh, Darcy says, when it appeared Cora was going to be discovered while living in the attic, I had to put the book down for a few weeks because I couldn't bear to read how she would be punished. How do you manage, compartmentalize, live your day-to-day -day life writing this story, The Nickel Boys, etc., without letting anger and despair overwhelm you? Yeah, no, uh, thanks, Darcy, uh, for reading and for your good question. Yeah, there is definitely compartmentalization. You know, if I was angry or sad, I wouldn't be able to, you know, find the sentences. Uh, with the Underground Railroad, I did all that sort of emotional heavy work before I started writing. Um, in doing the research, I realized that I would write a realistic story. Um, it was not going to be like Gone with the Wind, where some white ladies being self-actualized against the backdrop of slavery. Like, oh no, they're trying to burn my house. They should burn your house, you're a slaver. Um, so it's not gonna be a Hollywood version. It was gonna be uh, realistic in terms of violence and the dehumanization. And so I, I, I wrestled with that before I started writing. I'd have to put Cora in bad situations because that's realistic. Um, I wrestled with the existential problem of how am I here? How is it that this or that ancestor wasn't killed in the, of mine, wasn't killed in the Middle Passage? On this plantation, somehow had a kid who didn't get killed, who had a kid. So all that sort of despairing work I did before I started writing, and then the writing was very separate. With the Nickel Boys, you know, I usually mix it up and write a, a book that's more serious or than a book that has more jokes or is a little lighter in tone. And this time I did two serious books back to back. And definitely by the end of the Nickel Boys, I was very depleted. Um, in a new way that hadn't happened to me. You know, I felt, I just felt very bad. I felt depressed, I felt weary. Um, I had set out, I'd outlined a course for Elwood and Turner two years before, and now I was approaching it uh, with six weeks to go of writing. I was, you know, just felt bad for them. I felt bad for the real life survivors. I wanted, you know, it's not their story, but I wanted to be true to their experience, even if I wasn't uh, writing journalism or, uh, to work of history, I wanted to be true to what happened to them. I felt the duty to them. So, um, for the first time, I really felt bad for an extended period of time that I was writing. And um, I finished the book, and then I played video games for six weeks and just clicked for my family. And that was my way of uh, coming back into humanity again, not working and just doing things I liked, like sitting on my ass and cooking food. Uh, I can attest to your cooking, by the way. It was the best. It was the best. I've been singing your praises, man. I've been singing your praises. <laughs> you know, as I said, Elwood's my guy, and he listens to this uh, Martin Luther King speech again and again. And there are some lines in the speech which really struck me. I'll read them. Quote, we must believe in our souls that we are somebody, that we are significant that we are worthful and we must walk the streets of life every day with this sense of dignity and this sense of somebodiness. Uh, and that made me think about this idea of somebodiness and how it's connected to uh, the concept of Black Lives Matter, at least as far as I see it. And I wondered uh, if you see that connection and if you could speak to it. Sure, I mean, why is you know the phrase, I am somebody, Provocative. It's just a simple declaration of, of being. The same way, the same way, Black Lives Matter is. It's like Black Lives Matter. It's a simple fact. How could anyone even get mad at that? It's so, it's so, what's been so mind-boggling the last six or eight years is that it's really just saying I exist, I am somebody, and it drives people crazy. So, um, um, so there is that animating idea. Uh, I am worthful. I deserve freedom, I deserve rights, I deserve um, a life free from, from, from oppression. Um, and I think it's what we saw in the protests this spring, it's what we saw 
in 2014 when I came across the news of Dozier and felt powerless. Uh, nothing ever changes on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri. Nothing ever happened. Changes in the streets of on the on the campus of Dozier. What can we do? Um, in, in writing about what happened at, at Dozier, I can affirm the humanity of the students and um, and kids like me. You know, uh, so I do see that echo. And again, you know, I decided to set the book in '63. I decided to have Elwood look up at Dr. King. And I meant going back to his speeches and finding which speech would work for Elwood for the larger themes of the book. And it's not like I'm reading Dr. King every year. I hadn't really looked at his speeches since like college. And it was just really lovely and fortifying to hear him. You can go to YouTube and find all his speeches online and, and be transformed. Um, was he too good to be true? Yes. And yet he was with us for a time. And um, all of his words and all, all of his acts... Uh, still reverberate in our lives today, and they reverberate uh, in the spring and summer with protests, and hopefully they'll be with us on Election Day. I think that was a wonderful um, way to, to end this conversation. I'm really thankful that you took your time out from cooking and writing uh, to share your, your wisdom with us. No, thank, thank you, man. That's Colson Whitehead in conversation with Mitchell S. Jackson from a virtual Portland Arts and Lectures event from 2020. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swim, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to the literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.